Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. Welcome to the Hoban Minute. Coming at you like a 1969 Tom Seaver fastball <laughs> against the Baltimore Orioles in the World Series. We're here in the Hoban Law Group op- office in downtown Denver, Colorado. This is the Hoban Minute, and I'm with Bob Hoban. Bob, last week we had a, uh, I guess you would call it a civic discourse on the how the issue of cannabis, hemp, and commercial marijuana falls along political lines, and more specifically, the political divide here in the U.S. And it was really a conversation that stayed with me for the past week because it goes so much beyond uh, conservative and liberal. Uh, and being as polarized as we are in this country, it was just something I thought about a lot. And now moving into election week here at the Hoban Law Group and highlighting all of the places where cannabis ballot measures are going to be voted on here in the next couple of weeks, I thought that it would be it'd be nice to just kind of go through and review all of these states uh, where where there is legislation on the ballot, starting with, of course, New Jersey. The uh, Garden State. Of course. So, uh, as far as we can tell, and as far as the latest polls show, it looks like everything is very positive. Uh, and it comes kind of on the heels of a governor that was elected who kind of ran on this promise that, that we would see a commercial marijuana uh, system come into play in New Jersey. So, do you feel confident? What uh, What are your feelings on uh, on your home state? Well, before I talk specifically about New Jersey, great Tom Seaver reference, by the way. But uh, the idea of this in the United States, and we've talked about this before, in the U.S., cannabis legalization has to go through a citizen-initiated ballot measure. Not has to technically or legally, but it seems to be that's the pathway, right? And so... Governor Murphy in New Jersey, um, who has a limited, somewhat limited form of medical marijuana, commercial, but limited nonetheless in terms of conditions, had suggested and I believe promised that within the first 100 days of his governorship uh, that he would enact adult use or recreational marijuana laws. Well, there was tremendous ter- political pushback in the New Jersey legislature, um, tremendous pushback. Uh, representatives from low-income or distressed or minority communities really, you know, were up in arms in large part uh, because, you know, this is new to them. They didn't understand the data about um, gateway theories, not really an accurate thing, and that commercial cannabis in other jurisdictions has worked well and it's regulated well, so forth and so on. So the point is the legislature did not move forward on it. Murphy was not successful to convince the legislature to do it. So... Then you've got this vote, to your point. We've got this vote here on Election Day in New Jersey. The polling numbers would seem to, to, to indicate that it will pass. Remember, New Jersey is the most populated state in, in the densely populated state in the country, but it's also, uh, you know, there's 10 million people in just a small area. So there's a lot of voters, and there's a lot of diversity, but the polls seem to th- suggest that it would pass. Is it the litmus test vote? What is this about politicians at the state level in the United States that won't step up and and do something as it relates to the cannabis policy, cannabis legalization, commercialization topic? They insist on taking the temperature of the populace, and that's what all these votes are. And every year, it's a ballot measure. It's a ballot measure. Rarely, rarely 
There are exceptions to the rule, but rarely do you see uh, state politicians advance and enact legislation on their own through a legislature. So New Jersey will pass. That's my prediction. Uh, and it is the Garden State, after all, as we talked about. Absolutely. And on that idea of uh, citizen-initiated ballot measure versus what would come from the state, we, we do see kind of an interesting development in Mississippi where you had citizens get something on the ballot, but then you had the state legislature push back and counter-offer another uh, ballot measure with a far more restricted, and uh, as we talked about earlier, you said that the state was using a Donald Trump quote to act as if it was in support, if the president supported Mississippi legalization. And, of course, we've seen a development there. So shed a little bit of light on that one. Well, so that represents another thing. When, when, I, when I say citizen-initiated ballot measures, I just want to be clear that there's an initiative process that is citizen-initiated. There's referendums, too. So, in other words, some state legislators can say, here's the issue. Now I want you to vote on it. And that, that occurs as well. That is exactly what I believe has occurred in Mississippi. Uh, with regard to the competing measure. So these are political games, right? So you've got some campaigns saying, I'm going to go out and gather the 100,000 or however many thousands of signatures I need to get a, an issue on the ballot, the petition gathering process. And you use that for political leverage because it costs a lot. The signatures have to be verified. You oftentimes have to hire professional signature gathering firms and you pay 2 to $3 per signature. So it's a costly endeavor. At the end of the day, it's easier if you can get the legislature to do something. In this case, they said, well, stop with that, but that still went forward. We're going to put this out there, which is an alternative way to uh, address this policy. And uh, so there's these sort of more restrictive and more lenient measures out there. Um, but I never see that as a bad thing, Eric. I think you got to crack the door open. You still got to show people that this works. It's just because we know it and people within the industry knows and know that this has not had adverse impact on children and society and jobs and economy. In fact, to the contrary, um, they don't know that. Why would they know that? And you don't always trust the information that you get coming from the industry. So Mississippi was interesting. And to your point about the, uh, the president, um, the president has come out publicly in the past and say things like, I think I support medical marijuana. That's a, not a quote, probably not even close to the quote, but that's a sentiment, right? And then you've got this, uh, this, this other notion of, I think the states should determine it. Trump's on record as saying those things in reputable publication. He doesn't deny he said it. So the Mississippi campaign has taken that and said, well, Donald Trump supports, you know, medical marijuana legalization in Mississippi. And the Trump campaign said, um, you know, cease and desist. Donald Trump did not say anything about Mississippi. So we'll see how that plays out or if that has an influence. But it just goes to show in Mississippi, if Donald Trump supported medical marijuana legalization, a lot of people would vote for it. In another state, New Jersey, if Donald Trump supported medical marijuana or marijuana legalization, people would not vote for it. <laughs> so it uh, just goes to show that we're a pretty diverse country. Oh, absolutely. And then there's kind of another interesting uh, two-sided coin out there. And I think it's interesting because we talk so much on this podcast and every day in the work we do at the Hoban Law Group about cannabis business and cannabis businesses and just the industry at large. And I know in Montana – you have two separate measures, one that would allow for possession, 
and then another that would actually allow for the creation of the industry in the state. So I, I, I think that's kind of an interesting distinction. The adult use measure. I believe, right. So yeah. on the one hand, you may just have a measure that passes that allows people to possess and consume, but not necessarily open the doors for a cannabis industry, a, sure. a thriving cannabis industry like we've seen in Colorado and elsewhere across the country. So I just I, I kind of am interested why sometimes it's decided by folks to – remove the issues from each other do you just have legal consumption do you have the industry why not put it all? i mean i think in colorado we got used to an all-in-one measure where it was the, the uh, possession consumption and then the growth of this amazing industry that's brought in billions of dollars to the state uh, nonetheless i think it's just interesting to see that kind of unfolding in montana well so there's a little history too with montana montana's medical marijuana program came out of the box in a similar, different, but similar fashion to Colorado, how we started to see dispensaries under the guise of medical marijuana before there was state regulation. So there were no rules. There, remember uh, what they called Broadsterdam, uh, Broadway, you know, with all the stores. And, you know, there's still a lot of them today, but it was, you know, very dense with store after store after store. The, 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 the point is that the same kind of thing on a different scale happened in Missouri under the medical marijuana program, and people went, holy smokes, this is not what we signed up for. It made people nervous. It made politicians nervous. And let's not forget, uh, even though there is a strong Democratic presence, it's a very Republican conservative state. So I think that's reflective of the alternative choices. Adult use cannabis. There's a good chance that it passes. It, you know, it'll be close, but there's a chance. Um, the other one, which is, well, let's just, you know, decriminalize it in a certain respect. It's somewhat reflective of what the Biden campaign's promised, right? Is that a sufficient um, policy change? Just to say you can possess it. Doesn't that just continue to promulgate the black market, which is what, as policymakers, and which is which was we as an industry want to see. We want to get away from that because that. Uh, doesn't give the public comfort. It doesn't give politicians comfort. It doesn't generate tax revenue necessarily. So um, those are uh, those are some of the challenges. But uh, I I tell you, it's interesting to see what happens. I do think there's going to be a clean sweep on these eight or nine various measures across the country this year uh, related to cannabis. So oh, absolutely. And then, you know, beyond cannabis, and we talked a little bit with Sarah last week about this, but Oregon is is really coming out on the, the cutting edge of even what we've seen be possible with policy, which is, one, the psilocybin measure, yep. and then, two, just a flat-out decriminalization of all controlled substances. Where do you even begin on that one, Bob? I mean, there's certainly examples around the world. Uh, let's look, first of all, at Oregon. And uh, I've never lived in Oregon. I've got friends in Oregon. I've been to Oregon and Portland uh, and, and various places several times. I, I, I think it's a great state. But as we've seen, they're very politically active, uh, you know, uh, reflective of, of some of the riots that, that I don't know if they, they continue to this day, but they've continued for quite some time. Uh, people are politically active. There's unrest. Uh, people are politically motivated. Um you know, there's stereotypes like the show Portlandia. I don't know if you, you know, if you, if you, if you've ever seen that, that'll give you a, a glimpse of, of how uh, people would portray folks from that area. So they drive this forward, and they, they, they looked at it and they said, well, there's too many criminal criminal repercussions for, uh, you know, keeping completely le illegal psilocybin certainly, but 
all drugs. And there's models out there for decriminalizing. Um, so this is not, it's something that a progressive activist political area can move forward with. But it's based on data. When you look at a place like Portugal, it's not apples and apples, but the data is pretty strong that decriminalization works. You've seen decriminalization and relaxing of enforcement policies across the country in various cities, and they seem to work. So it's not a crazy idea, but it is very Oregon. Of, of course. And, and, yeah, Portlandia is a, uh, a wonderful show and a uh, – a mildly accurate depiction, I think, of the folks up there. Uh, I'm sure there are some Great people folks. that would take offense to that, but that's okay. Uh, moving down to Arizona, you know, that's uh, that's one that you wrote a great article for Forbes uh, on, kind of explaining that you were down in Phoenix for an event not too long ago, and we came very close to actually seeing a uh, cannabis legalization measure in the last election. And so by all measures and all accounts, it does seem like the support is there. And we may see, uh, to your point, we may see Arizona go uh, in favor of legalization this time around. Is there anything that is bear significant weight, I guess, with a state like Arizona, where you had John McCain, it's such a, uh, in people's, in people's minds, such a red state. Uh, is there anything there that you think would sway even more bipartisan support for cannabis legalization in the future if they were to go uh, in favor this year? I think I think the, the type of conservatism in Arizona, as it's painted to be, is a little bit more libertarian-like. It's a little bit more uh, code of the West kind of thing where people uh, uh, just want to be left alone. Um, and, and I think that comports with favoring cannabis legalization. Uh, in other words, what I want to do in my home, whether I want to do it or I'm not going to stop you from doing it. In other words, um, that's that's freedom, right? That's freedom in a nutshell. Now, interestingly enough, Arizona is also, you know, said to be a state that in the presidential election in a few short days here um, could fl not end up being red. It could be a, a, a state that... Uh, that goes, that's on the fence right now, and that's not historically accurate. Now, you don't know what you can rely on with the news and the polls, but that's, that's what they're saying. So to me, if in fact there's a, even a chance that Arizona is a blue state come election day for purposes of electoral votes, et cetera, um, I think that bodes really, really well, coupled with that libertarian attitude for cannabis legalization in Arizona. And um it is also a segue to another topic I know we were going to cover, and that is what we talked about the last time there was an election in Arizona for adult use marijuana. It failed. The, uh, there was a misinformation campaign uh, funded uh, to the tune of substantial dollars by, uh, I think it was called Insys, the, one of the first opiate manufacturers to, to really go down, and, and uh, the CEO had become ja jailed, CEO or founder of the company. I can't recall specifically which, but point is um, they funded the anti-legalization campaign ballot measure lost on election day I can't remember how close it was but it lost um, that opposition exists but not in that well-funded fashion right now so uh, it, it it's interesting to see what will happen now also this week as it relates to opioid manufacturers there were several um, settlements settlements akin to what we saw with the tobacco company settlements that occurred uh, uh, in the 90s, I believe, in the late 90s, that the tobacco companies sort of were 
you know, you've been selling a product that it, it created labeling. You know, there wasn't cigarette labeling like we see today that warn you of these things and have in other places in Europe and, and things like that, very graphic pictures of what can happen to you if you smoke cigarettes, right? None of that stuff uh, existed before those tobacco settlements. So the opioid settlements are similar, similar to that, but to the tune of billions of dollars of fines and uh, uh, money to be distributed, billions upon billions of dollars to be distributed. They, it's said that during the, the height of the epidemic, um, 450,000 people died in the United States from opioid overdoses. So it's a significant issue. And, you know, how it relates to cannabis is because it said, demonstrated, documented research that, you know, cannabis is a viable alternative uh, as a painkiller, certainly. But importantly, and this was demonstrated in Uruguay, that it can be not a gateway drug, but, you know, kind of like a getaway drug. It helps you get away from an addiction of opioids. When I mention Uruguay, I talk about one of the successes we saw uh, with the flexible Uruguayan law that was passed about five years ago now was it allowed people to create clubs. And not clubs like you and I would think like we see in Spain or, you know, clubs where you'd go in and, and consume marijuana as a bunch of friends, but clubs where people could cultivate together and they could have community gardens and they could accordingly on site consume that cannabis together uh, and you had to be a member of this club that was used in certain areas of, of montevideo which had a high pasta bus they called crack cocaine problem and they got people off of crack cocaine very addictive substance using marijuana it's been shown to, to, to do the same thing with opioids it's just does that information sounds like sound like uh, something that would come from a witch doctor it just doesn't get accepted necessarily mainstream well yeah and you know not to uh not to fly too much in the face of science, but I know as someone who's been in the industry for a while, the amount of anecdotal evidence to support marijuana uh, as a alternative to opioids is just abundant. And we've had so many of those conversations with really esteemed medical professionals on this show, including Dr. Uma, Dr. Carly Bell Biggins and others. And, uh, you know, I know in your, in your decade, or more of navigating this industry, I can't imagine the amount of anecdotal stories that people have around uh, people who they have known or they themselves who were either addicted to opioids or you know, mm -hmm. all, all of those stories are out there. And, of course, uh, it does relate to the cannabis industry. Um, you said something earlier that I want to come back to now, which is where do you get reliable industry news? Um, there are great publications out there, and, and really when you look at in, in, uh, industrial hemp, you know, you have Hemp Industry Daily, you have Hemp Today, Hemp Grower. There are publications out there who publish wonderful content. The writers work hard. They want to really get the story. They're objective about it. Yes, I agree. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and any time that hemp gets play in a national publication or a publication that isn't solely hemp-related – People like to pay attention to that because it's like, hey, we're getting uh, we're getting noticed, we're getting a shout out, and so I do have a uh, a slight point of point of conflict, I guess, with a, an article that came out earlier this week. It basically was uh, saying that the hype around hemp has proven to be just that; it's just hype, and that hemp has failed us. And this is uh, this isn't the first article that was published in 2020 by this publication. Uh, which is on the national platform and really a politically charged magazine that has kind of spread this message that hemp offered a wonderful promise. 
we talked about this when we spoke with Patrick and Garrett earlier today that uh, the purpose of the 14 and 18 Farm Bill was to establish a new agricultural commodity, something to help the rural parts of our country and the, the farmers and small businesses out there who are kind of hurting and that this is what this was an, an, an offer um, for something that we knew had a lot of potential, but we didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. And so for me, as somebody who works and breathes in this industry all the time, to see an article come out that you're going to have millions of Americans who do not read Hemp Industry Daily, Hemp Today, Hemp Grower, et cetera, uh, they see this article and they're like, oh, this hemp thing, yeah, it, was, it was what we thought it was all along. It was just a guise for marijuana, sure. and it's sure. not very successful. I think flies in the face of actual good information because, by all accounts, we do have a thriving industry here in the United States. I think what's interesting and what I've kind of drawn a lot of attention to in recent uh, weeks is we saw for the first time this year a decrease in overall acreage cultivated here in the United States. And on the surface, you would think, hmm, okay, so we had about a 20% growth rate for the last five years. What happened? Was it COVID? What was the real factor that, that played in this year? Uh, is it just that people are losing hope in hemp? I, I don't see it that way at all. I think that we know, and there is a well-documented oversupply problem for the cannabinoid CBD. Uh, and a lot of the folks who grew for CBD in the last couple of years, the folks who believed that they would make millions of dollars mm -hmm. for growing a couple of acres. Those people have learned that that was not the case. Uh, more than likely they were burned or the alternative, and we've both talked to these people, there are people who are sitting on thousands of pounds, uh, tons and tons and tons of biomass, and they just cannot sell it because they'd be selling it at a loss or there just is simply no buyers for that product right now. Now, on the flip side of that figure that the acreage has gone down in this country, the acreage has actually increased for the industrial uses of the crop. More people are growing for grain and for fiber. They weren't growing for those industries or for those verticals a couple of years ago because there was no processing infrastructure for that. There was a processing infrastructure for extraction, as you've covered in your Forbes article, for why that was kind of the first mover for hemp in the United States. So it just it irks me a little bit when you have a national audience and you have people who don't live and breathe this industry. They see this information. They see this headline. And uh, it just it sways public perception in a way that always kind of rubs me the wrong way. But uh, those are just kind of my thoughts on that. No, no, it's it's uh, it, it, it's there, those are good thoughts. Now, the industry's global. This is a global industry. The industry hasn't contracted. It has expanded, expanded dramatically globally. Now, if you focus simply on North America, one could could, could conclude naively and without basis of, of information, accurate information, real information, that the industry has not succeeded. But to your point, the diversification, that's critical. This is critical to the growth. We've always preached here at this law firm, and we've talked about it on this podcast, uh, that you have to have a whole plant approach. The notion of getting rich quick from selling CBD was never sustainable. But we knew it wasn't sustainable. And now we start to see this balance, to your point, acres upon acres that are 
devoted to grain and fiber production and other than just cannabinoids and CBD. That's growth. That's positive. That's an evolution. And we're more efficient now. We had 500,000 plus registered acres uh, two years ago, I believe. I don't think we grew half of that. But we grew a lot. We grew more than we've ever grown before in the United States, or at least in, in modern times, since the Farm Bills in 2014. Um, and that material created a saturated marketplace, to your point. There's nowhere to go with this stuff. There's no distribution outlets. So you had to use this useful plant to, tr to service multiple industries. We've always talked about that, but somehow that's a surprise to an author in a publication and they paint that as in a negative light, uh, there is hype with hemp, and there should be hype with hemp because it's such a versatile plant that service multiple industries. You can't service one industry when you, when, when you can harness multiple industries which protects farmers, and that's what this plant offers. We just haven't seen the infrastructure develop yet. No. We haven't seen the regulations come out yet. So to say that it's a failure or that, it, that, that there's no hype around it is incorrect. It's growing a strong foundation. It's becoming more efficient. It's growing in application, utility, and industries that it serves. That's progress. Remarkable progress in less than five years, Eric. It's so exciting to be a part of it because it, 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 it's what's old is new again or what's new is old again, whatever the case might be. But, you know, this, this was a major cash crop. We've got better technology now. Farmers know how to grow this inherently, and it's, it's moving in a very positive direction. A um, bunch of people got rich quick selling CBD. That was never sustainable. And you can't call that out as representing a failure of an industry because that's just inaccurate. And, again, it, it's surface and naive. No, absolutely. And, I, and I'm glad you did bring up that it, this is international scope. And if you really need further proof of that, look at Ecuador, which we just uh, recently had that uh, little webinar that we did, which is now... The regs came out just two days ago. Exactly. And Luis Armanderas, the Hoban Law Group uh, attorney and practice leader, he, uh, he shared some information about that. And you and I will be speaking uh, at a similar event for Mexico next week. So it is global in scope. It's by no means a failure. And really... Uh, you know, talk to talk to farmers. I think that's uh, that's what I would say. We did see kind of an interesting study that came out this week uh, as well, which was just a Gallup poll that uh, we had kind of a major change, a major shift in the public perception of which industries are the most important. This was undoubtedly impacted by COVID. Uh, we talked so much about essential business designation on this show, but think about how much people over the last six months have reevaluated what is extremely important to them. It was pretty important when you could not get uh, toilet paper at the grocery store. Uh, certain things that maybe were extremely important six months ago are not as important today. And what was interesting in this study is that uh, farming is now taking the number one place for what people consider important. Just that recognition that that is, at the end of the day, where our food comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a famous kind of saying and uh, I think a tagline for an organization out there, but if you ate today, thank a farmer. That's where that comes from is this idea that it's something we kind of take for granted, but uh, in this time when we've, we've had a lot of 
a lot of time and space to reflect on what is important in our world. Farming is huge. I still believe that hemp offers this wonderful rotational crop alternative, sustainable alternative to the other crops that our, our farmers are out there cultivating and producing year over year. And uh, let's not sell the industry and the potential short before we, we really have uh, a better idea. So, um, yeah, with all that being said, it's, I think it's going to be, you know, despite all of the shortcomings of 2020, and, and believe me, there are a lot of people out there who love to just go on and on about how this has been the worst year of all time. It's been a recalibration year. Um, and it's great to see cannabis on the ballot, marijuana legalization efforts. Hopefully we'll get another green wave, as you kind of indicated, and, uh, and give hemp a chance, you know, is, is all I'll say. Uh, a little nod to John Lennon. There. All, all, <laughs> all we are saying is give hemp a chance. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.